0: This is an audio essay. To read the actual essay, go to mahanmccann.substack.com. The link is in the description on Spotify or whichever platform you're listening on. Oh, a philosophical guide to self-development, part eleven. In the last essay, we explored Peterson's solution to the meaning crisis and how cultivating wisdom and virtue can help to orient our meaning instinct properly. We finished the last essay with the latest research on the science of wisdom and two core concepts of metacognition and moral grounding, which we will explore in this essay on how to cultivate each of them. Cultivating metacognition. Metacognition is basically awareness of our own mind. It is thinking about our own thinking, and all philosophy aims to cultivate metacognition. Some examples of metacognitive processes include intellectual humility, paying attention to multiple perspectives, and regulating your emotions when facing a challenging situation. I'm sure this last one sounds pretty familiar, as we've already discussed this in depth in the Stoicism essay, and there is a reason for this connection. John Vrveke argues that stoicism turns Socrates into a systematic set of psychotechnologies that you internalize into your metacognition. Internalization is a key concept for improving metacognition. Internalization was first described by social psychologist Leo Vygotsky to describe knowledge transfer. He hypothesized that we imitate others and internalize their perspectives in order to develop new ways of thinking. Vrveki provides the example of a child learning from an adult. The adult has a more complete perspective from the child, so the child imitates the adult to fill in their perspective. This imitation builds an inner representation, a model of the adult's perspective on their perspective, which affords metacognition through the inner representation. Through the inner representation, the child can self-correct and transcend their own perspective. Through metacognition, we can take perspectives on our own perspective in order to bootstrap ourselves to solve complex problems. Impressive as this ability is, you can see how it is not a perfect solution because none of our perspectives are perfect. And therefore, our inner representations are fluid. They require updating, which is really the work of philosophy. Philosophy is all about cultivating metacognition. And we can see this particularly at play in the Stoic spiritual exercise of internalizing the sage which we discussed in the essay on Stoicism, which is where you imagine a sage, for example, Socrates, and you start to allow them to critique your actions and perspective. It's the perennial, what would Jesus do? The sage becomes the aspirational self. And so by choosing a sage, say Socrates, we build an inner representation that is more complete than our own and use it to self-correct in order to improve ourselves. Remember, as the adult is to the child, so the sage is to the adult. So the sage is a developmental level above. The sage is an example of a mature individual. So by taking on the sage's perspective and our perspective, this affords us even more avenues of self-transcendence than just an unconscious model from people in our immediate environment. This practice provides us with a key avenue to improving our metacognition, which is expanding our imagination and stock of inner mental representations to increase our ability to self-correct. And all of this comes through what's commonly known as the conscience. The role of conscience in metacognition. Our use of inner representations for self-transcendence is similar to how AI large language models function. The large language model, for example, ChatGBT, pools a large amount of data into a model and then uses this pool of data to make predictions on what word is going to come next. You can use ChatGBT like another person and ask, for example, like Socrates, what would Socrates say or think? In some sense, our conscience is doing something similar. The conscience is an inner representation of an authority figure, which we have built up from our experience of authority figures in general. And then we use this conscience to critique our actions and provide a bigger picture view of life. (coughs) This framing can help us see how our conscience is both limited and ahead of us at the same time. Limited by our experience of authority figures, but ahead of us as another perspective on our own perspective, which is in charge of perceiving us differently and providing a portal to self-transcendence. The connection between the conscience and personal change or personal development is not the most obvious, but is very important. A clear example of this is a psychopath who lacks a conscience and hench is incapable of change. The mark of psychopathy is a refusal to pay attention to one's error and to change. This is why psychopaths are parasitic and frequently move around, because they are unable to maintain their cover for so long because they can't adapt to new situations. So you want to have a good conscience and a good relationship with your conscience because this affords you greater degrees of self-transcendence, which is really freedom. How do you improve your conscience? Peterson describes the human imagination as a game engine in your head, where you can produce an avatar and walk them down potential pathways to consider outcomes and then choose the outcomes you want, and that this is the discovery of the future. Oftentimes we think of the future as a thing, but the future is really the human ability to perceive and predict patterns in the imagination and then to select actions that are necessary to get the desired outcomes that we want. So training your imagination to get good at picking up these patterns means that you're capable of actualizing the desired futures much more effectively. So how do we get better at this? The Socratic solution is dialogue. You dialogue with others and internalize their perspectives on your perspectives, and this leads to a more well-rounded, complete inner representation. And in addition to this, you dialogue with your conscience. You listen and ask questions and try and orient it towards the truth. You make sure your conscience is oriented towards the truth because what you really want to be able to perceive are real patterns and what real patterns are is reality, the truth. Another level above this is that the use of dialogue also applies to the great works of literature, philosophy, art and what is called the great cultural conversation that has been going on since the dawn of recorded time. In absorbing the classics, great works, and spending time with brilliant thinkers like, say, Shakespeare or Socrates or Plato or whoever, you expand your inner representation with the stored and refined wisdom of generations, which you then internalize into your inner representation and which offers you greater advice and guidance. Once you do enough of this, you develop what's called a metacognitive perch, which is a place where you can evaluate information and actions and ensure you behave in accord with the highest moral principles. This developed and educated conscience is a necessary step for a high quality life. We often think of conscience as a moral thing, and very rarely as a skill that you can actually work on. People who are in touch with their conscience are classified as conscientious. The word conscientious means regulated by conscience. It is a personality trait associated with the tendency to be responsible, organized, hardworking, and goal-directed, and to adhere to norms and rules. Conscientiousness comprises self-control, industrialist responsibility, orderliness, and reliability. So because of the functional relationship one has with the inner representation and the inner representation itself, A conscientious person is more capable of inhibiting distraction, achieving goals, and hence maintaining positive emotions, which we will look at a little bit later. In addition, conscientiousness as a personality trait is the second best predictor of lifetime success and a predictor of lifetime health and life expectancy. So if you want to be successful, healthy, and live a long time, you need to be conscientious. Conscientious people listen to their conscience, but also have a functioning inner representation to listen to, and they take responsibility for their lives, which helps them organize themselves across time, i.e. into the future. So, to return to Peterson's solution to the meaning crisis, the conscience is an inner representation of an authority figure and can be improved imaginally by exercises like internalizing the sage, whoever that might be for you, Socrates, Jesus, whoever, The conscience then gets better at drawing our attention to our mistakes, and then if we correct those mistakes, we gradually improve our error-ridden character, which affords us picking up on more real patterns, hence makes our ability to make predictions better and means we can actualize desired outcomes. You can see how this could put you on a pretty positive feedback cycle in life um, when things are difficult. The payoff for increasing metacognition is an improved ability to orient ourselves in the world and regulate our behavior towards our desired goals. This helps us achieve our goals and organize our lives, which minimizes negative emotions. What I'm arguing here is that conscience is a skill and something that can be improved if one is willing to learn. This improvement is most evident in people with ADHD, as ADHD is low conscientiousness people who have ADHD will score low on big five personality tests on this dimension. And that's because ADHD is a deficit of executive functioning, which is not simply a moral failing, but a developmental disorder, and which is treated primarily with environmental interventions, like writing things down, using a schedule, timers, and getting people in your environment to keep you accountable for timekeeping, Because this externalizes the deficient internal representation and starts to build a new one. ADHD is a very extreme example of this, but it's something that we can all do with more of in our lives. So working with that inner representation, developing a relationship with your conscience, and learning more in order to expand it is the start of a genuine moral education. Part 2. Becoming Morally Grounded Here is an excellent time to return to the second wisdom concept, being morally grounded or morally aspiring. This is important because we often get morality so wrong in the modern world. The quote we started this series with was, morality begins in paying attention to what you don't want to pay attention to, but should attend to. Which indicates that morality isn't just about choosing the right or wrong thing, but as Iris Murdoch says, is about a just mode of vision. Seeing what we should see reality rather than just seeing what we'd like to see engaging in self-deception i would argue this is the basis for a universal morality rooted in the cognitive science of our solution to the frame problem and the problem of perception which is that to be a cognitive agent is to see the world to a frame of value you can check out some of the other essays for more details on this if you're interested in it this connection between perception and values is not culturally relative It is universal for all cognitive agents to be cognitive agents at all to see through a frame of value. In contrast, while the frames of value may vary from culture to culture, the requirement of a frame of value to perceive does not. So to perceive, we must simplify through a frame of value. And how do we justify what we perceive, what we should attend to, and what we will ignore? This negotiation is the start of ethics and morality. We have an implicit frame of value, so negotiating and transforming that frame of value into contact with the truth is the journey of ethics. Ethics and epistemology are really one and the same. A good example of ethics in action this way comes from Iris Murdoch in her book The Sovereignty of the Good. The example goes like this. A mother, whom I shall call M, feels hostility to her daughter-in-law, whom I shall call D., M finds D quite a good-hearted girl, but while not exactly common, yet certainly unpolished and lacking in dignity and refinement, D is inclined to be part and familiar, insufficiently ceremonious, brisk, sometimes positively rude, and always tiresomely juvenile. M does not like D's accent or the way D dresses. M feels that her son has married beneath him. Thus, much for M's first thoughts about D. Time passes, and it could be that M settles down with a hardened sense of grievance and a fixed picture of D imprisoned by the cliché. My poor son has married a silly vulgar girl. However, the M of the example is an intelligent and well-intentioned person, capable of self-criticism, capable of giving careful and just attention to an object which confronts her. M tells herself, I am old-fashioned and conventional. I may be prejudiced and narrow-minded. I may be snobbish. I'm certainly jealous. Let me look again. Here I assume that M observes D until gradually her vision of D alters. D is discovered to be not vulgar but refreshingly simple, not undignified but spontaneous, not noisy but gay, not tiresomely juvenile but delightfully youthful, and so on. In this example we can see how the moral action taken is really a kind of careful attention to error correction and the reevaluation of her unconscious framing of the situation. Making a moral effort to see what really is, rather than confusing her value judgments about the person in front of her, which is kind of an egocentrism, and what actually is. Here we can see the negotiation, the reevaluation, and the seeking of the truth, and the intellectual humility that's built into that entire process. And This is why Iris Murdoch says, Love is the incredibly difficult realization that someone other than oneself is real. It is the moral effort to see past one's necessary but not sufficient categories to the reality beyond that contains courage, truth, justice, wisdom, temperance, and is all encapsulated in this just mode of vision. We can see in this example how this type of ethics functions and is really about perceiving correctly and reevaluating when one is making snap judgments. It is deeply Socratic in its essence. This entire series has been about a similar transformation as the one the mother goes, a conversion of attention. Mostly we think about conversion in a religious sense and as a conversion of one's beliefs. However, the original Latin convertere means to look or turn around and was specifically about a change of attention. The change of attention is an inward turn to ignore the sound and fury of the external world and to know thyself which is, as Socrates describes, seeing your own seeing. We will look at this further in the next essay, but it is through this turn to the self to get to the bottom of one's own being that we start to get to the ground of being in general, also known as God. A very paradoxical image that through the self you reach what is truly other and divine. But it is that pilgrimage that is going on everywhere and all the time that we will meditate on in the last essay of this series, and that will hopefully tie together the last remaining strands.